Good morning. Merry Christmas. You all sound very merry. Well, welcome to Church of the King. If you're a guest, it's good to have you this morning uh, at Church of the King. If you've been here for any length of time, you know that we preach through the Bible. How? Usually verse by verse, right? Usually verse by verse, and we've been working our way through the book of... Does everybody need to go get some coffee and come back? (laughs) We're working our way through the book of Romans. Uh, We are through chapter 4, so we should be starting chapter 5 today, but guess what? We're not. Um, We are doing something different for Advent. We'll pick up chapter 5 on January 1, probably. So Advent, what's Advent? It's a season of longing. It's a season of hope. It's a season of expectation. We're looking forward to Christmas. We're looking forward to celebrating the coming of Jesus in the flesh. As we do, we remember all of the waiting and longing and hope and expectation that God's people had as they waited for the Messiah. So today we're, taking, or we're starting a little series called uh, Three Reasons God Became Man. Three reasons God became man. Okay, so there are, of course, cosmic answers to that question, right? Big answers to that question, big picture answers to the question. If you were to give your big picture cosmic answers to that question, why did God become man, what would you say? Any answers will do. To save us from our sin. What did he come to deal with? What problems did he come to solve? The curse, sin, connected to the curse is death, judgment. Was there something else over here? Yeah, 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 maybe, yeah. Leah, I know you want to speak up, man. Okay, death, all right, there it was. Leah, how does it feel uh, knowing that I uh, heard Ariane and thought it was you? Does it feel good? (laughs) Just kidding, I knew it was. Yeah, you should be. You should be flattered. That's the right answer. Okay. Um, Okay, so of course those are all reasons why, big picture, right? And we've been talking about them as we've studied the book of Romans, right? Sin, sorrow, death, judgment. It took a long time. It was 2,000 years from God's promise to Abraham until the birth of Jesus. 2,000 years of God building a kingdom. 2,000 years of God sending his people, prophets and priests and kings, to tell them about the Messiah, to prefigure the Messiah, to establish God's promises. And what was the final promise? It's a pop quiz. And I know that you guys are ready for it because you're just so engaged and here for it this morning. What was the final promise? If, what was the last thing that God, what's the final word? If you were to open, go ahead. To turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the hearts of the children back to their fathers. Count on the pastor, right? <laughs> it's kind of cheating. That's my job. Yeah. So if you open your Bible, if you have a Bible, you open it to Matthew, right? The New Testament. And you just flip back to the last verse of the Old Testament. 
or the last two verses if you want. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. Okay? And then from there on, silence for 400 years. Silence. No prophet, no word from the Lord, nothing. Just silence, anticipation, For relief. Relief from what? From sin. From sorrow. From death. There was hope. There was expectation. A Messiah is coming, one who would undo the curse that we've all been suffering under since our first father, Adam. One who would restore the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Okay, so here's the thing. Mankind, humanity, has daddy issues, and they run deep. We have daddy issues, and the key to fixing things is to deal with them. The key to fixing our futures individually and the futures of our children is by fixing our past. Our fathers, our own fathers, are the most dominant figures in each of our lives either by their presence or by their absence, but there's no escaping it. That's just the way it is. Because God wrote fatherhood into the world. Motherhood too. But fathers. Fathers shape who we become. They shape what we believe about God. There are all kinds of dads in the world, and there is a view of God to match every one of them. There are deadbeat dads, and there are deadbeat gods. Selfish, abusive, unfeeling, uncaring, absent except for when they want something. There are dictator dads who harass and control and abuse. And dictator gods, welcome to Islam. There are dopey dads who are soft and permissive. And there are dad dads who are not perfect but who do their best. But even those dads eventually become... We've had deadbeats and dictators and dopes and dad dads. So sorry to stick with the Ds, but even the best dads eventually become what? Dead. Dead dads. Because nothing lasts. And eventually even the best dads let us down simply by being human. They die and they leave us. And it's not their fault. And even though it's not their fault, it still hurts. And it can still feel like a betrayal. It can still leave us angry. Why is that? Why is that? Well, sin and death. They're curses. And they're curses we can trace all the way back to our first father, Adam. They're not natural. Our first father, Adam, rejected God the Father. And everything has been a mess ever since. And God did curse us with death, and we deal with it, and we feel with it. And we as a church have been dealing with it. We have been dealing with it this past week. Mensels have been dealing with it. Conrad's have been dealing with it. Joneses have been dealing with it just this past week. My Nana died. My kid's great-grandma. Our Papa Hawk died. 
Katie, if you know Katie, her dad, Amanda's last living grandparent. David's dad died. Liel and Lucas and Evan's grandpa. And this is the past week, right? Death is an enemy. And it hurts. It interrupts our lives and we can't control it. We don't have any say over it. It hangs over each one of our heads. It bursts into our lives and sometimes in ways that we expect and sometimes in ways that we would never expect and yet here we are and we have to deal with it. And it's an amazing thing because every generation has to deal with it just like the generation before as something entirely fresh and new. Why? Because even though since the history of the world, countless mothers and grandmothers and fathers and grandfathers have died, never in the history of the world, until it happens, has yours died. It hasn't happened to you. And so you feel it as if nobody has ever died before, every time. And every generation goes through this, and it doesn't matter that your parents and their parents and their parents' parents all went through it. It's just the way it is. We all have to walk through it for ourselves. And then we face death ourselves. We all walk down the road of suffering, of sorrow, of death. And it's our own journey. And we all feel on some deep visceral level that it's wrong. This is not how things should be. It's not natural. Not really. The idea that people put out there that this is just a natural problem, we know it's a lie. And part of how we know it's a lie is because it just feels wrong. What's one of the things that you hear people say? It doesn't feel real. It doesn't feel real yet. And some of that is denial, maybe. But I don't think all of it's denial. I think some of it is like, no, this is just wrong. This is not how things should be. We should, on some, on some level, it's easier, it would be easier to go to bed tonight and wake up thinking about Christmas with all of my dead grandparents as if they had never died, then to again have to go to Christmas and think, oh yeah, they're not there. They're not going to be there. On some level, it's natural to grab my phone and want to call or text somebody that has died as if they're still there and should still be able to answer me. And I don't think that's a denial of death I think it's an acceptance of the curse of it all. Of the wrongness of it. Does that make sense? It is not natural. But it is real. And it's not something that we can change. And it's pain that we feel, and it's pain that we feel all the time on different levels. And at different times. It's a function of the horror of sin. So here we are, and it's Christmas time, and it's Advent, and it's a season of anticipation and expectation and hope. And what is our hope? It's Jesus. 
So as we approach our three reasons for why God became man, I want us to have the cosmic picture in mind. It's not hard. We all feel the tension going into the holidays, right? Every family has empty places at the table. Every family has its expectations and hopes. And there's going to be a lot of fun and there's going to be a lot to celebrate and a lot to rejoice in. And none of that's going to change because none of that's ever changed either. But there's going to be sorrows that are real too, and that's okay. How is it okay? Why did God become man? What did Jesus come to do? Why is there such a thing as Christmas? Three answers this Advent season. And they come with uh, three fun little gifts that we're giving the kids each week, culminating with a great little gift on Christmas morning, come in your pajamas, bring the kids, it'll be fun. And you get to go explain to them why they have glasses that are dopey. I, I wore my glasses today so I wouldn't have to wear glittery glasses and get grossness all over. Number one, and that's what we're going to talk about today, is to reveal, Jesus came to reveal God the Father. That's what the glasses are about, to reveal the Father. Number two, we'll talk about it next week, to reconcile us to the Father. And third, the week after, to restore us to life. Three R's. Reveal, reconcile, and restore. So reveal. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Why did Jesus become flesh? Why did he dwell among us? To reveal the Father to us. It was to make God known. John tells us the same thing in John 14. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. To know Jesus is to know the Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said, have I been with you so long? You still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus came to reveal the Father to us, to show us the Father. Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 4. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So where do we find the light of the knowledge of the glory of God? In the face of Jesus. That's why he came. He came to reveal the Father to us. In covering himself in flesh, he uncovered the Father. Everything he did is a revelation of his Father. Now, if we turn back to that promise in Malachi, right? You got your Bibles, you got your apps, you just, you know, scroll over, flip the page to Matthew chapter 1. What do we see? Well, we see fathers, right? The genealogies of Jesus and a lot of sin. Like we, have you ever just gone through and thought about, you know, David, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. The more you know the Bible, the more... And, and if you didn't know, even then, you know, Matthew sticks some things in there like, David, the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, 
We've talked about David, right? We've talked about some of these things. It's a mess. Okay, so we see that. We see the birth of Jesus. And we come to John chapter, or sorry, Matthew 3. We see the baptism of Jesus. What happens when Jesus is baptized? Hmm? The Holy Spirit descends as a dove. And a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Question, in terms of his ministry, what had Jesus done so far? Anything? Nothing. Not a thing. Not a thing. Does that matter? Does it matter that God the Father declared to the world and to his son that he was pleased with him before he had done a thing? You bet it matters. It absolutely matters. Here's something you have to see and get deep inside of you. God the Father did not wait to express his approval of God the Son until he had proven himself. He did not wait to do it until he had performed his job. He laid down his approval at the beginning as the foundation. This is my son. Before he ever started his ministry, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus' ministry was not based on the idea that he needed to please his father, but that he was already pleasing to his father. From eternity. He did not work for the father's approval. He worked from the father's approval. Why? Because he's the son of God, that's why. When you went to the hospital for your kid, you held your firstborn kid in your arms for the first time. Did you think, well, he hasn't done anything yet to be happy about, except, I guess, poop and cry, throw up? No, he's just happy, right? He's pleasing to you. She's pleasing to you because she's yours. And it better stay that way. That it better be how you approach your kids all the time and you'd better not get it mixed up. You're pleased with them because they're yours. Don't ever invert it. God the Father looks at God the Son and says, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Was it important that Jesus hear that the Father was pleased with him before he ever got started. It was important that even the Son of God heard from the Father that he was pleased with him. It was important for Jesus to hear that. If it's important for Jesus to hear that the Father is pleased with him, it is important for your sons and daughters to know that you're pleased with them. It is important at the outset of Jesus' ministry to hear that he is pleased, that God the Father is pleased with him before he ever did anything to prove it. Don't make your sons and daughters prove themselves to receive your love and to hear of your pleasure in them. How about when they're not perfect? How about when they've done things that displease you? 
when they need discipline or correction? Well, they had better know. They'd better know that they're being disciplined and corrected by somebody who is for them, who is pleased in them, and who is only correcting them and disciplining them because something has come between us or something has come between them and the Father. And what's most important is that that relationship be reconciled and restored because it pleases you to be at peace with them and for them to be at peace with God. Love comes first. It has to be the foundation. Did Jesus need to hear that the Father was pleased with him as his beloved son? Yeah, well, what happens next? If you're looking in your Bible, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, the tempter came and said to him, what? If you are the Son of God, immediately his identity as the Son of God is attacked. Immediately. And that happened throughout his whole life and ministry. We're Abraham's children. We're not sons of fornication. Pharisees. You remember that? Why would they say that? There's something sketchy with you and your mom and dad, that whole thing. Remember that? I don't know about you, Jesus, where you came from. He's the Son of God. Jesus' identity as the Son of the Father was central. It's how he began his ministry. It begins with the fact that he's the son, the father is pleased with him. And then Jesus gets to work. You see in John chapter 4, he calls his first disciples. He starts teaching and preaching and healing. He went throughout all Galilee and the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease, every affliction among the people. They brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. What do you see when you see Jesus? You should see the love of God the Father for sinners. That's what you should see. Above everything else, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. Everything in Jesus' life and ministry is that. You see all the other attributes of God there too. You see the holiness of God, the justice of God. All of those things are present. But guess what? Jesus didn't need to come to make those clear. All that needed to happen was judgment. You know what makes perfectly clear the justice of God? Hell. That would have been enough for that. But Jesus comes, and what does he do? He's born as a baby, and he immediately, as he begins his ministry, just starts loving people wherever they are. They have diseases, he heals them. They have problems, he fixes them. And he teaches them. He does the Father's work. He gets down on our level. He says, 
Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. There's no Old Testament God mean, New Testament God kind. Jesus is showing us God the Father. He gets down on our level. He looks us in the eye like a father gets down with his children. He gets low. He humbles himself. He does the Father's work. John 5, whatever the Father does, the Son does. He does the works of his Father. He does what he sees the Father do. His life and ministry is just his Son going to work with his dad. Doing what he's seen. How about you? When you were a kid, did you want to be like your dad? Did you want to dress like your dad? Did you want to have the same job as your dad? Did you want to do the things that your dad did? Do you follow him around? If your dad swung a hammer, did you swing a hammer and create some chaos? Do you ever have a dad or a grandfather that included you in his work? My grandfather was that way, especially after my parents divorced because my dad was working all the time and he had custody, so I would spend the summer with my grandpa and grandma. And, uh, you know, he'd just be out and it didn't matter what it was. You know, mowing, landscaping, working on the tractor, it just didn't matter. Um, and one of the things that I am I'm like most proud of, like when I look back on that, I'm going to cry. Um, we built this bridge together and, I, and I'd love to show you guys the bridge or to take you to it and it's this dopey little thing across a ditch and it doesn't matter to me like we built this and, and you want to know what else the, the day I hit my first home run was a day after working on that bridge and I don't think it was a coincidence I was so proud to be able to work on that thing with him and I still am and I didn't do a single like I did nothing I didn't do anything. What, I hold some boards? Screw in some screws? Like, what did I do? But I built that bridge with my grandfather. And I can't even separate in my mind the fact that I did nothing to build that bridge, and I built that bridge. Nobody else built it with him. Nobody else was out there. None of my friends were out there with him. I was out there with him. And I'm still proud of that stupid thing. And sometimes I drive by it. My grandfather built that bridge, and he built a man at the same time. That's what dads do. That's what grandfathers do. My, uh, my brother Andy um, was always working, working with his popo, and I was old enough at that point in time uh, to be super annoyed by the idea of him working with his popo on the farm. Because what that meant was he's like five years old and he's going to go, he's got to go out to the farm to work. What did that mean? Well, he sat in his pose lap on the tractor. <laughs> was it working? Poe was raising corn and soybeans and a man. A man who loved to work, who saw working as part of his identity. That's what dads do. That's what grandfathers do. 
Why are Conrad's handy? Why can they do fun, cool things? Well, you know, every year, this will be, I don't know, maybe this won't be the, the first. Maybe it'll be the last. We get these little handcrafted toys from Papa Hawk. It wouldn't surprise me if he's got some that he's already made for this Christmas that the kids get. Just what he does. Like, why is Amanda crafty? Like, we were just talking this past summer about, well, wouldn't it be fun if Peter could go and make things with him? The apple never falls far from the tree, right? Jesus does the works of his father. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> so Jesus starts teaching. Um, shoot. <laughs> All right. Here we go. Jesus calls his disciples to himself. He's going to explain to them the kingdom of God. How many times in the Old Testament does God teach us to call, or teaches people to call him Father? Zero. Zero times. The Psalms are the prayer book of the people of God. God's not even addressed as Father in the Psalms. It was referred to as, compared to a father once. As a father pities his children, so God has pity on those. And yet, in the Sermon on the Mount of the Alone, the, uh, alone, the first recorded sermon of Jesus, he refers to God as Father how many times? 16 times in just the Sermon on the Mount. 14 times as your father. Once as my father. And once as our father. When he teaches us to pray. Our father. We share the father with the son. Think about it for a minute. It took the coming of the son of God to reveal the fullness of God the father. So over and over and over throughout his entire Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches us that life and godliness is about our relationship to our Father in heaven. He says, this is my Father and he is your Father. Listen, learn, and obey. We've already studied the Sermon on the Mount as a church, right? I want us to go back. I mean, we're just working through Matthew, okay? And we could work through every gospel and we could look at Jesus all over the place. But I just want us to look at the Sermon on the Mount because we already are a little familiar with it. Okay, and just see. Matthew 5. Why are we supposed to be salt and light? So that people will see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. Why are we supposed to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us? So we may be sons of our Father in heaven. Why does that make us his sons? Because 
Our Father makes his son rise, sends his reign on the evil and on the good. Why are we supposed to be perfect? Because our Father is perfect. Why are we supposed to not draw attention to ourselves when we give to the poor or when we pray? Because we have a Father in heaven who sees. We don't need the praise of men. We don't live for that. We live for the praise of our Father in heaven. Why do we not heap up many words when we pray? Because our Father knows what we need before we ask Him. When we pray, how do we pray? Our Father. We could keep going. We could work our way, as I said, through the Gospels, through all the Gospels, through all the teachings, through all the miracles, through the ministry of Jesus, all the way to the cross where the Son laid down His life to reconcile His enemies to the Father. And we'll talk more about that next week. And here's what I, but here's what I want to do this morning. Knowing God as your Father through Jesus the Son is the most transformative thing that will ever happen in your life. But you have to know him as he is. Jonathan Edwards says he's a lion to your enemies and a lamb to you. Tough for you. Tough for you. Tender to you. We'll never leave you, we'll never forsake you, we'll never abandon you, we'll never abuse you. In Christ, we have received adoption as sons. As a Christian, if you have turned to Jesus in faith, God has adopted you into his family. He is your father. And it starts how? It starts where? It starts with forgiveness. In receiving God's and then right away, in turn, extending our own. You have to come to God for the forgiveness of your sins. You have to confess them. You have to deal with your sin. You have to leave it behind. You have to deal with the sins committed against you. You have to look back. You have to deal with them. You have to forgive those who have sinned against you. And that often begins with forgiving who? Our own fathers. But you can't forgive them if you don't deal with the sin. But as I said at the beginning, your view of God is shaped by your dad. It's either a projection of your dad or a rejection of him, but shaped by your dad. You've got to deal. If you're going to deal with God, you've got to deal with that. Until you've dealt with your dad, the good, the bad, the ugly, no matter how great your dad was, he wasn't perfect. You have to deal with it because there's a good chance that he is still standing between you and God the Father. Forgiving your earthly father is essential to coming to any understanding, real understanding, deepened understanding of your father in heaven. Because so long as you refuse to deal with him directly, you'll be dealing with him indirectly. He'll be a lens through which you see God. How do you forgive an abusive or negligent or absent dad, or just a pretty great dad who just wasn't perfect. You have to embrace a father in heaven who is perfect. You have to accept that it's okay. You don't need a dad who's perfect. You don't need, if your dad's the kind of dad that taught you you had to prove things to him, you don't need to prove anything. She's the kind of dad that taught you you have to win his approval. You don't have to 
you, have to, you don't have to win anybody's approval. You don't have to pretend like there's a happy relationship where there's a lot of unresolved tension because in God the Father, through Jesus the Son, you have a perfect Father in heaven who, while you were still his enemy, sent his Son to die for you and is already pleased with you in Christ. He already approves of you. Fully and completely. Not because of anything that you've done to prove it or win it. You couldn't do it. But because you are in his son Jesus and he's already pleased with him. And he's even more pleased with him because you know what? He was pleased with him from eternity past. And then he came and he did the works of his father in heaven perfectly. And now he's even more pleased with him. There's no losing. Not only does your dad then not have to be perfect, you don't have to be perfect either. You can screw it up. You can screw it up as a dad. You can screw it up as a mom. You're going to. You can screw it up as a son. You're going to. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to love your kids and point them to the Father in heaven. Teach them not just from your successes, but from your failures and your mistakes and your sins. Put it all out there. It's okay. You want them to build on you, right? You want your ceiling, the best you can do, to be their floor. They build on and that they pass on to their kids. That's what men do. That's what fathers do. You have to be committed to being a father, to being a man. It takes a man to raise a man. Boys raise boys. As he was preparing to leave his disciples and go back to his father, do you remember what Jesus said to them? I will not leave you as as orphans. I will not leave you as orphans. We don't go through life alone. Our Father goes with us. Wherever we go. He promises to be a God to us and to our children. He'll be with us as we love our kids, as we discipline them, as we apologize to them, as we repent and ask their forgiveness as we love our husbands or our wives, as we repent of our sin against them. Why? Because Jesus came to reveal the Father and to restore the hearts of the fathers to their children. Because God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus reveals the fullness of God's love to sinners. The extent to which God would go to save men. He didn't have to, that's the whole point. What is special, what's revelatory about Christmas, about God being born in a barn? 
taking on flesh, walking this earth, getting down on his knees and teaching us, healing us, weeping over the death of his friend Lazarus. What's revelatory about that? It is the compassion and love of God for sinners. That is what is revelatory. Above everything else, what's revelatory about the cross? The compassion and love of God for sinners. Yeah, it speaks volumes of the justice of God. It speaks volumes of the wrath of God. It speaks volumes about all kinds of things, the fullness of God's character. But it speaks the love of God. Okay. Now we have the privilege of coming to the proof. We come to the Lord's Supper. And in the supper, we celebrate what? Sorry? The death of Jesus. The love of our Father through the death of the Son. It's a family meal. Which means it's a meal for sons and daughters. Which means that you must be part of the family if you're going to come to the meal. Okay? How are you part of the family? You look at your sin, you look at your failure, you repent. You come to Jesus. You come to the Father through the Son. And you say, I'm yours, save me. And if you've done that, if you've given your life to Jesus, if you've trusted in him, if you've been baptized, if you're a member in good standing of a Bible-believing church, it doesn't have to be this one. This table's for you. It is the love of God to you if you partake of it by faith. If you're living in unrepentant sin, if you're walking against God's ways and God's commands and you're not willing to deal with it, this table is dangerous. Don't come until you've dealt with your sin. Confess it to God, come to Jesus, repent. Come talk to somebody. We'll pray for you. We'll talk to you. Talk to me after this service. Talk to Ben. That's what we're here for. Let's read the words of institution. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've not left us to ourselves. We thank you that you have shown your love to us and that while we were sinners, you sent your son to be born in a barn to walk this earth and to die for our sins. Help us to have faith for that this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, come to the table. Uh, there is, oh man, wine in the middle? Wine in the middle.
Wine in the middle, grape juice on the outside.